it is, uh, let's try that again. Good morning. There we go. I want you to at least pretend like you enjoyed the extra hour of sleep, even if you did not. Uh, but if you've not been with us, I do want to say thank you to Pastor Corey, who faithfully preached uh, from Genesis uh, this past week. It is, again, so good to know we have so many faithful uh, amongst us, Corey included, who could stand in this pulpit and preach the Word, and all those who teach, not only our children, uh, but in our adult discipleship. Man, it is a joy to see uh, so many who faithfully share the Word of God and teach the Word of God. Well, this morning we are back in our series called Holiness, the Call and Challenge uh, for the Church. We are jumping right back into Paul's letter to the Corinthian Christians, and we now find ourselves moving away from chapter 9, picking up the rest of this story, beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And as you're finding your place in the Word of God, I want to kind of step back and, and just remind you of where we've been, uh, remind you of where we've come from so far in uh, this letter. Now, Paul has written to the Corinthian Christians uh, by this point about uh, their freedoms and their rights, uh, really speaking to the group that he called the knowers uh, versus the weak and talking about the rights and the freedoms that the knowers now understand. But in light of those freedoms and rights, he also shared with the Corinthian Christians that we uh, now have a responsibility for the sake of the gospel to do our part in meeting people right where they are, again, with the goal of making Jesus Christ known and to see younger, uh, immature believers, if you will, uh, grow in their faith and grow in their understanding of who Jesus Christ is. And so because of that goal to make Jesus known, Paul then began to write about how the Corinthian Christians and us as a church today need to begin to practice what he called gospel discipline, which means just uh, that continued growth that happens as we continue to walk in sanctification and, and as we continue to grow in our own understanding of the call to holiness and what it is that Jesus Christ has called us to. And in light of this discipline that we are now called to practice, Paul today brings the church to a point where he now wants to caution them and to call them to be aware of the dangers that now lurk for the believers in the Corinthian church, especially the dangers of temptation, the dangers of sin, and apostasy, or better yet, a renouncing of the faith. And so as we look at our text this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the first 13 verses, we're going to see that Paul's going to write about really the history of God's people, something you've already heard as you've heard the word spoken this morning. He's not only going to write about the history of the people, but also some of the troubles that they then found themselves in, and ultimately the lessons that the Corinthian Christians should learn from the Old Testament believers, and lessons that we should learn as a church today. And again, Paul, in typical Pauline fashion, is going to close out our particular passage this morning with a word of comfort and a word of grace as he reminds us and reminds the Corinthian Christians not to worry because God will not allow his people to fall away from their faith. And he's going to answer why that is true and why we don't have to worry. And he's going to simply say to us this morning, because God is faithful. So as we walk through this passage this morning, as we hear some of the, the, the similarities between the Israelites and the people of the Corinthian church and, and the comparisons to us today, as we hear the warnings that then come with that, I want us to always remember that as we begin to close out our passage with each verse, let's remember that simple phrase that we see in verse 13, which is this, God is faithful. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I want us to begin reading today in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. And if you have found your place in the Word of God, if you can and you are able, I would invite you now to stand in honor of the reading of the Word. 
Now again, this is Paul writing to the Corinthian Christians in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning at verse 1, Paul writes, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Now, as we look at this text, I want us to begin to see and understand that what Paul is doing this morning for us is he's drawing the comparison between the Israelites who were wandering in the wilderness, walking in faith with God, to those who are now modern-day believers in the Corinthian church who are believers in Jesus Christ and thus now living out their faith. Now, what Paul's going to do is he's actually going to, to point out the sins of the Israelite nation during this particular time and ultimately caution and warn the Corinthian Christians to be aware, or better yet, to, to hear the warning that is now before them and not follow that very same pattern. Now, Paul's going to open by pointing out the privileges that the people of God were able to enjoy. And yet, at the same time, while enjoying these privileges, it was God who became displeased with them. And then what happens in our text, as Paul continues to write, is we begin to get a picture of why God was not pleased with his people. And thus, we begin to see the warning that Paul now gives to the Corinthian Christians in terms of what we ourselves should avoid. In other words, here's what Paul is saying for us this morning. Learn from those who have gone before you. Be aware of what it is that they went through and then learn from them so that you don't do the same thing. I mean, really, the, the quote to bear in mind here is this. If you don't know your history, you are doomed to repeat it. You see, for Paul, the goal was very simple. He wanted the Corinthian Christians to learn from the past and ultimately grow from it. Now, just as a note, this passage is going to end on a positive. Ultimately, Paul is going to, to remind the church of the faithfulness of God, which will ultimately set us up 
for next week's message as he dives deeper into the, the struggles of idolatry that the people were dealing with, not only the Old Testament believers, but also the Corinthian Christians themselves. But before we get there, Paul wants the Corinthian Christians to now hear the warning, to look back to the past in order to be aware of the pitfalls that they may face. So this morning, let's look back at our text together and really see the three points that Paul calls the church to now be aware of. Our first point is found in verses 1 through 5. Paul says this, be aware of complacency. Be aware of complacency. Notice how Paul draws a comparison between the Corinthian Christians and the Israelites who were wandering in the wilderness. In fact, Paul opens by saying of them that they were our fathers. Now, this is interesting for us to notice because for the Corinthian Christians, many of them in the Corinthian church were actually Gentiles. They were not Jewish at all. Yet Paul wanted them to understand that they were now a part of restored Israel because of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And again, when we speak of restored Israel, we're not speaking of the nation, we're speaking of the people themselves, how through Jesus Christ, their hearts are now restored back to God the Father. Paul then writes about what the Israelites enjoyed from God. He says that they were all under the cloud. And they all passed through the sea. Now again, the reference here takes us back to Exodus, Exodus 13 and 14, where God led the people by a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, and how it was the people that crossed the sea on a dry ground. Now Paul, again, is making this comparison and making this point because he wants to show how the people now have the favor of God, and thus as the people of God, with the favor of God upon them, they were now protected by God. You see, for Paul, he wanted the Corinthian Christians to understand that in Christ, they are now under the same protection of God. In other words, as Corinthian Christians in the church today, as, as followers of Jesus Christ, nothing can thwart the plan or the will of God for His people. Nothing can. People often want to talk about churches and how they come and how churches go. They come and they go because of the providential plan of God. Life happens according to the will of God. Do you think that there's anything that happens in this world that God is all of a sudden surprised by? No. Because God alone is sovereign. Paul continues in verse 2 and he says, And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now again, Paul makes the comparison that, that just as the Israelites were baptized into Moses and thus established as the people of God, so too were the Corinthian Christians baptized in the name of Christ, thus they were now incorporated into the church, and therefore they are now adopted into the family of God. So notice again how, how Paul is bringing Old Testament Jews, the people of God, together with the, with the Corinthian Christians, these Gentiles who've come to faith in Jesus Christ, and he's saying this, you're all a part of the same family. In fact, Paul says to the church of Galatia, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have now put on Christ. In other words, baptism, according to Paul, is a reminder that we now belong to Jesus Christ. Baptism is a reminder that we now belong to the family of God. Thus, we are now the church and thus called to be the church, enjoying the blessing and the protection of God together for all eternity. 
Paul continues from there into what the believers enjoyed under this protection. Look with me again in verses 3 and 4. Paul says, And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Again, Paul says that, listen, just like the Old Testament believers who enjoyed the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, their version was the anticipation of the Messiah to come, whereas you today, our version is very similar to that, yet it reminds us of the Messiah who did come. And so as we look at the text, it's the Corinthian Christians that are then reminded of the rock that Moses struck. They're reminded of the story about how when they When Moses struck the rock, it was water that poured forth from the rock. We see the story told in Exodus and again in Numbers. And yet Paul says, for the Corinthian Christians, this rock for you is Christ Jesus. For he is the rock who is the living water that we drink from today. Again, Paul is drawing to comparisons because he wants the Corinthian Christians to understand just how close they are to the faithful remnant of God found in the Old Testament. So there's a lot of parallels that happen right here out of the gate. And so after drawing these wonderful comparisons, I want us to notice what happens. We get to verse 5, and all of a sudden Paul, in typical Pauline fashion, drops the hammer on the people and reminds them of the problem that the Israelites ran into, which is a word of warning of the problem that we can run into today as New Testament believers. And so Paul says, be aware of these things. Verse 5, he says, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Notice how Paul now points to the problem that was found within the Old Testament believers, but also the same problem that they saw within the Corinthian church. There was a problem of complacency among the people of God. We read about this if you go back and read beginning in Numbers chapter 14 and following. You see, the people in the midst of enjoying God's good pleasure, in the midst of enjoying God's faithfulness, they began to grumble. They began to whine. They began to to complain about how they would never even arrive into the promised land. And so they had grown so accustomed to God's favor that they were now missing what it was that God was doing all around them. And so ultimately, they wanted more. They didn't even see the blessing that was before them. They didn't see God's purpose or God's plan and God's providence in the midst of their daily moments. They, they wanted more. They wanted the, the goal, if you will, yet they lacked the faithfulness to trust God to get them there. And so what does Paul say? Paul says, and with most of them, God was not pleased. And thus we begin to read how God began to judge them. Again, brothers and sisters in Christ, I want us to hear the warning today. Let's not ever take the faithfulness of God for granted. In our own lives, let's let's not become so complacent in our own faith that we begin to miss what it is that God is doing in our midst and all around us. As the people of God, We should be a disciplined people, disciplined enough to to see where God is at work in our lives, disciplined enough to be able to, to rely upon the faithfulness of God, and disciplined enough to gather together as a corporate body for the purpose of praising God for who He is and what He has done. I mean, shameless plug for a moment. This is why we do prayer gatherings on Sunday nights. Let me just ask this question. For those of you who join us on Sunday nights, how do we start every Sunday night? 
With what? With adoration and praise. We begin by praising God for His characteristics. We praise God for His attributes. Why? Because we need to be reminded of where God is at work. We're not reminding God of who He is. God knows who He is. God knows who He is, whether or not we want to acknowledge it. No, we begin that way so that we can remember who God is, so that we can remember the work of God. And so what do we do? We look to the Word. We look to the Old Testament. We look at the Gospels. We look to the New Testament. And what do we see in the Word? We see God at work. In fact, this is why we need to gather with the body corporately. We gather for the purpose of of being encouraged to, to praise God for what it is that He has done and for what it is that He is doing. Because we are the ones that now need that reminder. And yet, if we are not careful, here's what can happen to us as believers. We can become lazy. We can begin to complain. The air condition's not working. It's too hot. Tell me about it. I just stay hot all the time. Even if it's on, it's not helpful. We begin to cry. We begin to want to quit. We don't like what's happening. And we begin to fail to see where God is working and what it is that God is doing because we've become complacent. So brothers and sisters in Christ, hear Paul's words today and let's learn from the Israelites. We need to be aware of what Christ has done. We need to be aware of what Christ is doing. We can't allow our worship. We can't allow the Word. We can't allow accountability and discipleship in and of itself to become mundane in our lives so much so that we begin to miss what God is doing in our midst because we choose not to prioritize what it is that God has called us to as believers. So I want to ask you today in your own walk, brothers and sisters in Christ, have you become complacent? Are you missing the work and the wonder of God? Have you forgotten the grace that God shows you? Not only every day, but the fact that God showed you His grace and the fact that Jesus Christ is now your Savior and Lord. You see, for Paul, he wanted the church to understand that if you're not careful, you will fall into complacency. So be aware of complacency. And then here's what Paul does. He's going to continue to move from there into verses 6 through 10 and show us where it is that complacency will lead us and ultimately why this complacency amongst the Old Testament believers began to displease God. Which leads to our second point. In verses 6 through 10, Paul says, be aware of complacency that leads to sin. Now notice how Paul is going to go on in, in, in this translation to give the Corinthian Christians five examples. Other, other translations only have four. Uh, but what he gives is five examples of the sins that were committed by the Israelite nation amidst their complaining and amidst their complacency. He writes to them in verse 6 and he says, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. In other words, Paul warns the Corinthian Christians to 
to look at the example that was set before them so that they don't fall into the same pattern of complacency that will lead them to sin and lead them to evil, which ultimately will lead them to judgment. And as the text continues, we're going to see Paul give example after example of God's people, the Israelite nation, growing within its own idolatry. In other words, they began placing things and stuff and and people before God. Now again, Paul's going to turn this on the Corinthian Christians, but we're going to get into that in our text next week. However, for, for this week, Paul wanted the Corinthian Christians to be warned against this trap and to see how quickly complacency itself will lead to idolatry. Verse 7, he says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Notice how Paul reminds the church of these sins, again, that are found in Exodus, and uh, particularly chapter 20 and, and, and chapter 33 when, 32, when they began to eat and drink and, and play in the name of a, of a graven image that they created as their God. And yet this image was not God itself, nor was it given to them for worship by God. And yet they chose it over the God that had delivered them to this point. And so Paul warns the Corinthian Christians, don't be found guilty of idolatry in what you eat and what you drink and what it is that you do. In other words, Paul is saying to us today, don't put food or drink or or playtime ahead of God. Why? Because in that moment, that thing or that item becomes your idol. Let me unpack this for just a moment so we understand what this means for us today. There's a lot of us in this room who eat to live. Praise be to God, you should. Food is a good thing. Except onions. Otherwise, food is a great thing. We can debate the merit of an onion later. Okay, that's just for me, not for you. you I feel that conviction, not you. However, there are a few of us in this room who would actually say this. We live to eat. There are some of us who say that phrase, myself included, where we're emotional eaters. We need food because it, it comforts us. Okay? We need that food because because maybe we've had a bad day and so we turn to it. I used to be that same person and and still am, so this is something I'm under conviction about this morning. Because there are days I go home after a stressful day and all I can think is I just want to get home and allow little Debbie to comfort me. (laughs) And so food becomes that thing I turn to. And here's what Paul says. If you need food to comfort you and comfort your emotions, then guess what? That's idolatry. Because no matter what you eat, it'll never sustain you the way Jesus Christ can. Paul continues from there and he says this, you come home and you feel like you have to have a drink. Maybe you come home and and I'm not just talking about water here, but maybe you come home and you have that certain drink that you have to have and, and what happens is this, every day you come home and the stress begins to compound and compound and compound so much so that you feel like, man, if I don't come home and I don't, and I don't have this drink right now as soon as I get home, then I'm just going to have a horrible evening because I have to have this after a hard day. Well, what happens when all of a sudden every day, seven days a week becomes a hard day? What happens when all of a sudden you leave church on a Sunday morning, you come back for prayer gathering, you leave prayer gathering and you said, I've had a hard day. I need this drink. Guess what Paul says to that? If you really believe that you need a drink, that's idolatry. Because that drink will never sustain you. It may numb your pain, 
but it will never provide the way Jesus Christ can. Maybe in more modern times you come home and all of a sudden there's a certain show you have to watch or a certain game you have to play or a certain game you've got to be on on your phone or a certain thing you have to look up and all of a sudden, whatever that thing is, it takes the place of the Word of God. It takes the place of your family. It takes the place of your, of your worship at home and, and your, your individual worship and you, you have to have it because you crave it every day. Paul would say, that thing that you think you crave, that game, that activity... Yeah, that's idolatry too. Because it may be fun in the moment, but it will turn to ash in the end. You see, here's the truth that I think Paul's trying to get at. Jesus Christ does not nor should not take a back seat to the things that we think we need in order to survive. Jesus Christ does not nor should not take a back seat to the things that we think will give us peace and comfort. Because only Jesus can do that. You want peace, you want comfort, then come to Christ. Because Christ alone provides. Paul continues in the text in verse 8. He says this, and we must not indulge in sexual immorality. Now again, this comes back to Numbers when the men of Israel had begun to have relationships with the Moabite women. And Paul has already warned the people in the Corinthian church to flee sexual immorality. We already saw that back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, what does this particular verse have to now do with the Corinthian Christians? Well, Paul was now warning them not to enter into inappropriate relationships that would ultimately lead them to bow the knee and worship idols, which is exactly what the men of Israel were doing when they were taking the Moabite women. You see, they were entering into these relationships with Moabite women, and after having these relationships, these these women were saying to them, if you want to continue to be with me, then you need to worship my God, or my gods, if you will. And so the men of Israel said, okay. They abdicated their responsibility to faithfully follow after God. And so what happened to them? They compromised their faith. They compromised their beliefs for the lust of another. And Paul says, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Notice how God judged them and then punished them for their sin. He judged them and punished them for their idolatry. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let's be careful of what it is that we worship when it comes to our own physical desires. Let's be careful of what it is that we seek after when it comes to our own idolatry because in the midst of your desire, you may begin to compromise your faith. In the midst of what it is that you think your desire, apart from God, it may begin to compromise what it is that you believe. And in the midst of your desire for something else or someone else, here is what ultimately happens. It will begin to change who you are and who God has called you to be as you attempt to become something you are not for someone who is not yours. You don't believe me? What about the people who struggle with addictions that they see on the computer? And again, I'm speaking with little ears in mind. You will begin to desire that which is not yours. And what will it do? It will change you. Even in our relationships today, if we begin to desire uh, other people, coveting other spouses, commandment, by the way, it will change us. And not for the better. 
It will change us because it will push us to compromise what it is that we believe. So for a moment, if I could, my singles in the room and my teenagers, look at me. I'm going to look at my notes. You look at me. If you are in a relationship or you are seeking a relationship that is pulling you away from faith in Jesus Christ, if you are in a relationship or seeking a relationship that is pulling you away from a Bible-believing church, pulling you away from the Word of God, then hear this from Paul today. What you are pursuing is not God's best for you. It's not. God has a better plan for you than to spend your days with someone who's going to simply seek to pull you away from your faith. Now again, don't mishear me on this. I'm not talking about your friendships. Okay? Your friendships can and will pull you down. I'm talking about your relationships. Stop compromising what the Word of God has called you to because you believe that you need to be in a relationship. The first and most important relationship you need is with Jesus Christ. And then everything else will fall into place from there. Paul continues in the text in verse 9. He says this, and we must not put Christ to the test. Now again, this could mean a variety of things, but Paul's actually going to get more specific for us than that. He says, as some of them did, I love how he keeps using that phrase, don't do this as some of them did. I love that. And were destroyed by serpents. Now again, Paul is recalling uh, the passage we already read earlier where the Israelites tested God, and because of their sin, they were bitten by serpents, and ultimately they, did, they died. But I want us to key in on the fact that Paul actually uses the word destroyed. It's the same phrase that he's going he's to come back to when he says, and they were destroyed by the destroyer. Doesn't that sound awesome? Now this word destroyed literally means that they were put to death for their sins. But they weren't just put to death for their sins, but their sins led them to destruction that comes when God judges the whole earth. I mean, just think about that for a moment. Okay, because here's the thing that, that is a big misconception right now in our society, okay? We, thanks be to God, by the grace of God, have a relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so because of that, there is going to be life for us, and like everybody else on this planet, we're going to experience death, but the good news is for the believer that because of the death and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, because of the ascension, there is just not just death for the believer, but there is eternal life with Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise be to God for the hope and the promise that we have in Him. However, for those who don't believe, they will experience life the way the Christian does. Without the hope, without the mercy, without the grace, without the goodness. And then they will experience death like the believer does. And then here's what happens. Paul says, and then they're going to be destroyed. They're going to be obliterated. Why? Because there is no hope in Christ for them in that moment. Why? Because their lack of faith and their, their, their choosing to follow after their sin is going to lead them to destruction. And so if anything, for us as believers in Christ, let's hear that word and say this. Hey, for the family members we know, for our colleagues we know, for our, our, our children around us, our neighbors that we've gotten to know, let's Tell them the good news of Jesus Christ because He alone provides life eternal. Amen. 
And I don't want people to know the destruction that is coming apart from Christ. Now Paul here, coming back to the text, is actually warning the Corinthian Christians, especially the knowers, the mature in the faith, who were getting comfortable with their freedoms. He says to them, listen, don't test God. Don't think for a second that your salvation isn't all of a sudden a get-out-of-jail-free card that now gives you the freedom to do whatever it is you please. You can't all of a sudden continue to walk around in a lifestyle of sin and say, well, that's okay, I'm saved by grace. That's not how that works. In fact, Paul warns, if this is what you believe and this is how you act, then chances are you may not be a believer at all, and thus, thus death and destruction and judgment now await you. In fact, think about this for a moment. If you're testing God, and you believe you can test God, then you need to heed Jesus' words. Let them ring in your head and your heart as you read Matthew chapter 7 again, where he says, And depart from me, you doers of lawlessness, for I never knew you. Brothers and sisters, we have to be careful. We can't test God and look at him and say, well, it's okay that I'm doing this because God is my safety net. You can't all of a sudden say, well, now I can do what I want, when I want, however I want, and nothing can stop me. No, here's the reality. You're either enslaved to your sin, or you're enslaved to Christ. At no point are you ever the master. If there is a decision to be made, then it's for you to decide who it is you're going to follow because you cannot serve two masters. Now coming back to our text, Paul's not done. He's got one more sin to address. And again, Paul is laying it on heavy. But here we go, verse 10. He says this, Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now again, Paul's going back to the Old Testament where the people grumbled and complained about a lot of things. I mean, if you go back and read everything that takes place in Exodus and Numbers, you're going to read a lot of complaining. Okay, so as you're reading that, you're going to have to read it with the lens of, hey, but God is providential. You're going to have to remind yourself of our phrase in verse 13. But God is faithful. Okay, go with me here. Exodus chapter 15 through 17. The people complained about the food. The people complained about the water. Thus they were complaining about the provision of God. Numbers chapter 11. The people complained about traveling within the wilderness. Now they were complaining about the direction and the providence of God. Get over to Numbers chapter 16. And you see the people complaining about the leadership of Aaron. The man chosen by God, called by God, following after God. And what do they do? They complained about him. And so what are they complaining about now? They were complaining about the plan of God and the sovereignty of God itself. I mean, let me tell you, this is worse than taking a road trip with small children. And you know what I'm talking about. You get 10 minutes into the trip, you're traveling north on 75, you haven't even passed I-4, and the children begin to complain. Are we there yet? And you know you've got at least six hours to go, if not more. You begin to debate as a parent, is it time to give my child Benadryl? <laughs> like you'll, you'll, you'll justify it. You'll, you'll hear like a raspiness in their voice and you're like, hit them up with it because I don't want to hear it. Some of you nurses are looking at me going, I'm going to question the way the Harvey's parent at this point. <laughs> Allison's like, no, you're good. I do the same thing. Praise be to God. Thank you for that, Allison. That affirmation, I appreciate that. 
But I want us to understand that this was exactly what the people of God were doing. They were complaining at every single step. And with every complaint that was rooted in the sin of idolatry, that was just built upon the foundation of complacency, they were missing what God had done for them and what God was continually doing. They had forgotten to see God's faithfulness throughout their journey to the promised land. And so Paul comes back to the Corinthian Christians and says this, don't be like the Old Testament believers. Don't complain to the point where you miss what it is that God is doing. In fact, Paul says something similar to the church of Philippi, Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. He says, do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom who shine as lights in the world. I mean, don't miss Paul's point here as he speaks to the church of Philippi and what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says this, listen, if you spend your days grumbling and complaining, here's the reality. People don't want to be around you. If you spend your days grumbling and complaining, Not only do people not want to be around you, but they really don't want what it is that you have. Because you can't sit there and grumble and complain days on end, weeks on end, hours on end, and all of a sudden, but my hope is in Christ. No, it's not. They're not believing you. If you spend your days grumbling and complaining, then guess what you're doing? You're actually ruining your witness. Now again, don't mishear this. We're going to have bad days. We're going, to need to be, we're going to be frustrated. It's going to happen. We're going to come home. We're going to vent to our spouse. It's going to happen. Our spouse is then going to vent to us. And then in grace, they're going to correct us as a part of the sanctification process and say, who are you to vent? You have Jesus. Does that only happen in my home? Okay, I just want to make sure. By the way, that's Allison correcting me. Let's, let's clarify that. It's never the other way around. <laughs> she just said right. <laughs> Thanks for the affirmation. Paul says this, listen, Christians, you're going to vent, but what are you really complaining about? Why are you spending your days complaining? Like the believers of the Old Testament, God is with you every step of the way. God is going to continue to work. He is continuing to work. Why? Because God's not done with you. God's not done with the place that he has you. So, so brothers and sisters in Christ, today, we have to ask ourselves, what do we have today to complain about? Again, you're going to have bad days, but guess what? You still have your salvation. Jesus Christ is still Savior. He's still Lord. You still have the, the freedom to read the Word wherever, whenever. You still have the freedom to gather with the body of believers for the purpose of corporate worship. You still have the freedom to go home today and, and rest in knowing the faithfulness of God. And you can still go home today and worship even in your own homes. So again, I ask with Paul, what do we have to complain about? And why are we allowing the complaints to dominate our hearts and our minds and therefore miss what God is doing all around us. Don't become so complacent that you begin to complain and miss what God is doing. And again, I want to I acknowledge this. Life's not easy. It's never going to look easy. Let's be honest. But here's the reality. Even on the hard days, God is there. How do we know this? Because he promised us as much. He says, and know that I am with you always to the very ends of the age. That wasn't just for some of us. It was for all of us. 
Now, here's what Paul has done. He's now hit the Corinthian Christians with complacency in the midst of, 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 the midst of, of blessing and how the complacency can lead to sin. And so now what Paul's going to do is he's going to turn to a message of hope here. And so we get to our third point, which is found in verses 11 through 13. And here's what Paul says. Paul says, be aware that God is faithful. Read it with me again, verse 11 and 12. Paul says, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Notice how Paul now gives the reason why he shares these stories with the Corinthian Christians. Israel's history was not meant for us to look back on them and say, man, what a bunch of punks. We're so much better than them. I mean, Jesus, you're so lucky to have us. We're not going to complain about water coming from a rock. Yeah, right. No, Israel's history was meant to be an example for the church to come so that the church would avoid the pitfalls of complacency. So the church would avoid the complacency that leads to complaining and grumbling that leads to sin and at the same time so that the church would begin to see God's design for salvation throughout all of history. I mean, pay attention to this. God created the world, all of creation, all of mankind, in order to point us to His glory and to His plan for salvation. You can read all about this going all the way back to Genesis. And thanks be to God, our students have been walking through this faithfully um, under the teaching of Forrest. Forrest, thank you for being so faithful in this. But throughout Genesis, we see God's love for His people. We see His hope for their salvation. In fact, you go back and study Adam and Eve, and what does God do? In the midst of their sin, He doesn't just boot them out the door and say, good luck. He provides. He clothes them. He offers His protection. And yet, as recipients of the promise of God that is found in Christ... We need to realize that as the church today, we are covered, protected, and are now part of God's plan for salvation. Brothers and sisters, hear this word as a word of encouragement today. You are here as a believer because God had a plan for your salvation, and it was His plan all along. So, again, when you look at the story of Israel as the example to be aware of, we need to be aware that we need to remember to keep ourselves fixed on the hope that we now have in Christ. A hope that will take us beyond complacency and the sins that complacency will lead to. You see, for Paul, he wanted the Corinthian Christians to remember that in the midst of the faithfulness of God, it was God who was doing the work. Thus, we have no need nor reason to stand and take credit for what God has done. I mean, think about this for a moment. In your own life, what part of salvation can you even take credit for? Nothing. You didn't do it. God did the work. When it came to to the fact that we came to to a saving grace, a a knowledge of the grace that is found in God the Father through Jesus Christ our Lord, what did we do? Nothing. It was all Jesus Christ. And this was His plan. And can I say this to you today? God didn't make a mistake when He called you to Him. Okay? You're not the mess in the yard that God just slipped up on and said, well, daggum, that was Johnny. I didn't mean for that. 
That's not how this works. No, God in His faithfulness revealed Himself to us and therefore gave us the gift of eternity. The greatest gift we can ever know and that is salvation in Christ Jesus our Lord. In fact, Paul says as much, verse 13, look at it. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That is a that passage I would underline in red in my Bible because it reminds us that God is faithful and that God is again the one that's doing the work. Again, Paul recalls for the Corinthians to again run this race, this race that he talked about, run this race faithfully. And so what Paul is doing is he's showing how both the warnings that came earlier and the promise that has come now, how they actually work together. And so here's what Paul is saying in this entire passage, verses 1 through 13. He's saying, beware of complacency, because that complacency, if not uh, cautioned against or warned against or fought against, will lead to sin. And yet in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our faithlessness, let's remember that it is God who will always be faithful. And so God's faithfulness will not allow temptation to exceed what it is that we can handle. Now again, let's not mishear Paul for a minute. This does not mean that we can walk around saying that God will not give you more than you can handle. That's not true. And I'm going to tell you why. Because you don't know what you can and cannot handle. You think you can. You think this is it. This is all I can handle. And then things get better. And then what happens a month later? They get worse than they were the month before. No, what it means is this. Is that God will always provide and will always be there even in the midst of what it is that you think you cannot handle. Yes. It means that when temptation comes, it means that when sin creeps in, God has already provided the way out. Now, several of you are going to hear that and say, oh, okay. So what you're saying is when sin comes into my life and into my home and locks the door, God will open a window? No, I don't think that at all. I don't think he just opens a window. I think he knocks down a wall. I think it's just that clear. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3 says this, but the Lord is faithful. There it is again. And listen to what it says. He will establish you and he will guard you against the evil one. Key words, established and guard. In other words, what that means is this. You're never trapped in your sin. You're never trapped to your sin. You're never trapped by your sin. Why? Because God is faithful. Why? Because God has established you, meaning this. He has called you to faith in Him, and thus, because of Him, you now have firm footing. Because of Him, you are now guarded. In other words, that means this. There's always a clear way out. This is not some sort of escape room where you've got to figure out a puzzle. There's a wall that has been destroyed. A roof that has been opened. And there is always a way out. So if we're going to be aware of anything, let's be aware of this. Be aware of God's faithfulness. Even when His faithfulness in the moment is hard to see. Let's remember and rest 
and knowing that the same God who is faithful in salvation will be faithful to see us and guard us until the end. And because of that, we, brothers and sisters in Christ, can now rest in hope. And so I want to ask you, are you resting in the hope in your salvation and in the hope that God is faithful? Last Sunday night, we walked through a little bit of Psalm 3 together. And here's what happened in Psalm 3. We came across a part of the passage where we read about David in the midst of the rebellion, in the midst of having enemies all around him. What did David do? David rested. Why? Because David believed in the faithfulness of God. He was able to rest because he said, even though my enemies are all around me, I can close my eyes and rest because I know that God is faithful. And so I want to ask us today, does that describe us? If not, then let me encourage you, read Psalm 3 and commit it to memory. And then put Psalm 3 into practice. You see, here's the beauty of the Bible, is you can always draw parallels between the Old Testament and the New. And I am thankful that in our text today, we have a parallel between the Old Testament Israelites and the modern church itself. And here's a clear case where we can see those parallels come to light. You see, for Israel, their rock was Christ. And yet Israel tested the rock in the wilderness. And ultimately, Paul says, they suffered for it. So Paul, in writing now to the Corinthian Christians, teaches the Christians and us today to learn from the lessons of those who have gone before us. Be aware. Be aware, church. Be aware. Do not become complacent because complacency will lead to sin if we are not careful. Rather, if anything, let's be aware that God is and always will be faithful. Let's be aware that that God's plan of salvation was not just for the beginning of time, but it's for the here and now as well. It's also for our future as we continue to draw closer and closer to the day of judgment. And praise be to God that we as believers in Christ, because of Christ, are now on the right side of history. So Paul calls the church to remember the stories. He calls them to be aware, knowing that in the midst of the awareness, we see the call to persevere in holiness. Now, I love what John Calvin says about this point, often quoted from this pulpit, probably says this whole text better than I could. He says it this way. He says, the Lord is the sure guardian of his people under whose protection you are safe, for he never leaves his people destitute. Accordingly, when he has received you under his protection, you have no cause to fear, provided you depend entirely on him. Be aware, church. Be reminded, be encouraged, for we belong to him. To God be the glory that we are his today. Let's pray together.